Hey there, Shopamaniacs! You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about front-end web design and development. I'm Dave, over three kilobytes, Rupert, and with me is Chris Goyer. Chris, I don't know how many kilobytes oh, you, you gonna, are. I thought you were going to call yourself Dave Never Slow, Rupert. Oh, no. Chris, Chris, fast-hand Goyer. Uh, uh, Instapaint. Uh, that's all I got. Hey, Chris, why are we talking about... Uh, kill bites and well we're in the middle of our our kind of our modern javascript ecosystem mini series here which has been exciting to talk about you know we've had great guests on and then last week we got to just talk with each other about crap i think we have spent a you know two-thirds of the episode talking about css and js that was fun yeah. that was fun uh, and but this week we're we're, we're going to continue on with our guests, and we have a perfect guest to talk to us about all things JavaScript and speediness, uh, Mr. Jason Miller. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hello, I am well. How are you guys? Fantastic. Jason is in Boston at the Google to set the stage. Yeah, is that right? Yep, I am at El Goog. <laughs> and uh, uh, in developer relations and whatever that means these days. Yeah. Uh, changes daily. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing. Since I can't focus on anything, it's actually quite a good job for me. Uh, <laughs> new job title, great. I'll just. <laughs> Was it a dream job for you? Because you, you know, you could probably do anything. You're known for a bunch of libraries and stuff that we'll get into. I, I imagine you have a, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like a guy like you, you know, you could, you could bring that knowledge to just about anywhere. Was it was it was Google reach out to you, or were you like, oh, that'd be awesome to have an impact at the web by going there? Uh, a bit of both. We had done some stuff uh, for events in the past, kind of just lining things up, and uh, eventually I realized that most of the people who I knew worked at Google, so I might as well go and work <laughs> also at Google. Yeah, that's why I worked at this ice cream stand in college because like all my buddies already worked there. So. Same diff. Just love the product, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the product. <laughs> um, okay, cool. And and you know, Google care clearly cares about web speed stuff, right? Like all the, there's all it. kinds of products from Google that are that are are web performance based, and and you care about that too. You know, probably most notably, you know, if you. Perhaps if you haven't heard of Jason, which would be crazy, but just in case you haven't, you probably have heard of uh, Preact, right? Huge library that's kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, you tell us. I'm not going to tell the world what Preact is when Jason's sitting right here. What is it? Oh, let me see if I can remember the elevator pitch. Uh, nobody's asking that. Um, Preact is a tiny, like three kilobyte What's the best way to describe this? It's a tiny three kilobyte library that kind of feels a lot like React. Um, and over the years, that has evolved to mean multiple things. But in its present sure. state, it means that if you are a person who knows React or who wants to know React, but you want to build an app where you may not be able to use React or you are like embedding something in someone else's website, there's constraints there. Uh, yeah. React is like... You can use your React skills, but uh, using only the tiniest little substrate possible. So, like, it's al almost like uh, if you if you were going to use vanilla JS, but you wanted to use a bunch of React patterns, this is the library you might go for. Yeah, because it's it quite literally is super super tiny. So yeah. it's got to be ten x smaller or, or more. Yeah. 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 That's fourteen. 
I can never remember the exact number. React's been doing crazy good stuff, reducing their build sizes, though, especially like since Dominic joined the team. It's just, you know, it, it used to be a lot higher. It's it's not. <laughs> That's nice. They've been slashing their size. That's cool. But anyway, it's not it's not it's not anywhere near as small as Preact. So what do you get though? Like you know, has, I, I don't know. Like uh, even I'm a little foggy exactly. You know, I, I feel like when I spin up a, a React project, which of, of course I have, it's always like you know React and friends. You know, but what? And I'm sure those friends can come along to Preact land as well. You know, for example, you need some kind of more elaborate state management kind of thing. React deals with state, but only at like a component level. If you want state management beyond that, you kind of got to bring in the friends or whatever. So React doesn't concern itself with that. It doesn't concern itself with a lot of things. In the same way as the, you know, the value prop for for Preact is, you know, bring your skills and, and we'll help you to go to more places, kind of like how React Native lets you bring your skills to native dev. Um the other half of that is because those APIs are so similar, in some cases identical, uh, definitely used to be more identical, um, a lot of the libraries that you use with React just also work in React. Uh, and like for the weird cases, there's like a bunch of uh, legacy APIs that Preact doesn't bother implementing or like some stuff that just doesn't make sense given its approach to like children diffing. Uh, and for those, there's a separate add-on library called Compat that kind of bridges those gaps. It basically just like polyfills a bunch of the more esoteric React functionality into Preact itself. Interesting. So, I mean, what do you get, though? You get a component library, right? You get a thing that makes little components. Yep. You get your JSX. You get your, JSX, you get, uh, your component base class or whatever we're calling it these days. Uh, and a render method, the virtual DOM diffing, all the stuff that's familiar. Uh, like nowadays, um, there's more surface area to React than there was in like the 0.15 era or 15. Uh, so like, obviously now, as of <laughs> I guess yesterday, uh, React has a thing called hooks that is a thing. It's a big deal. Um, and so everybody's yeah, big deal. Everybody's going around making a hook for everything that didn't have a hook. <laughs> I I see a lot of people like now they're just like looking at their their you know ten thousand line React app like it's all garbage. <laughs> it's <laughs> now that <laughs> well, what's confusing to me is that it seems like React itself is like oh sorry about classes that was a bad idea or whatever. I'm like really I like that. I at least I get that. Like I don't I don't know and I. I I don't mean to sound totally ignorant of it because I try to keep up okay with it, but it seems like React itself wants you to not use them. Honestly, so it kind of felt like I, I totally don't have insider information here, but like, and I started building Preact when classes were already sort of accepted as like, oh, this is going to be the way forward for everything. Um, because I was one of those people that had been using like Babel Transpile classes since way before they ever had a hope of making it into browsers. So you, <laughs> you like classes. <laughs> uh, so I'm weird that classes, way. Classes, they're I, uh, super. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> oh, not uh, bad. <laughs> I would say I like classes more than I like inheritance. Okay. Uh, and I know that's like really weird. I like classes as like, just like instantiable objects. I'm writing a 10,000 so, word medium post on why you're wrong, but uh, we'll just. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have good company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So that, it's funny because like React obviously used to have create class, which 
confusingly was specifically you know, to avoid having a class who's more like a stamp factory object. And now we're kind of in this weird world where like we've taken the isms of create class, like being able to have static stuff uh, or being able to have things that like functions on an object that have their own life cycle that have has like nothing to do with class instantiation or destruction. Uh, it's like instantiate on first use or these, these interesting semantics and hooks are basically like a functional implementation of create class. I know it's, this is super heresy for me to say that, but uh, I kind of view this as, as like the natural evolution of how create class goes away and we get something that replaces it, that fulfills exactly the same need. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I, so like when, when hooks first came out, uh, my initial impression was, this is crazy. <laughs> how on earth is the ecosystem going to move to anything new? We already know how painful it was to go to classes. But since then, I've done like five or ten prototypes of what that would look like in Preact and other libraries. And now I kind of get it in, in like the worst possible way. Like I get it in that like hooks has like incepted itself into the back of my brain. So anytime I'm thinking about like writing a demo or whatever, and I've got this like pure function that returns DOM, my, my logical like back of the brain is going, Hey, if you want to add state, you should implement hooks and then use hooks. <laughs> and so everything I do now, like has this, this awful like subtext. Of it's funny how that happens. happens. You know, I feel like in, even in CSS land, you learn, let's say you learn CSS grid and use it a lot. Now everything that you come across that has any kind of layout, you're like, use grid, use the grid. <laughs> yeah. It's great. That, or you like, you don't use grid, you use like a float or whatever. And then there's like this little demon on, on like, <laughs> you yeah. know, this would have been better with grid. <laughs> there's a, so I guess, so Preact does not have hooks yet or okay so this is where i get to tell you that we spent the last year rewriting preact from scratch oh my gosh uh and like i mean no lines of code copied over generally not even looking at the existing implementation before i joined google i was trying to figure out how the heck we were going to do fragments in preact fragments uh it's like a, a node in the virtual dom tree uh they can have children and whatever um, but then when you go and like render it out to the DOM, it's gone. And the way that Preact stiff has always worked, that is ridiculously hard to do, because uh, it diffs the virtual DOM against the DOM. So like you can't get rid of something and then compare to it later. Um, oh, that's that's wild. Yeah. And, and it's funny because in the I think of it as just sugar, kind of. Like I know it matters because it, it and. In the end, it's a div that's not there or some kind of wrapper mm -hmm. element in the DOM. It's kind of nice to have that level of HTML control, but it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, you know? Yeah, and uh, it's, it's weird. Like, my first pass at this was, why don't we, like, create a persistent fragment in the DOM? Like, you can't use document fragment because when you append a document fragment to something, it kind of dissolves and its children get moved instead of copied. But, like what if you had an element that had a shadow root and a slot and 
you know, it's a lot of it's yeah, like and so my brain started going into the weeds there and trying to figure out like how could I make it's a it little dull? weedy, yeah. Because it also seems like you could go div style equals display contents, and then that div, the parent div, kind of disappears. Yeah. yeah, and that kind of works. So like our our work is this giant giant mega thread on the React Compat repo, being like, hey, uh, how come there's no dot fragment? And my solution was just fragment equals like div style equals display contents, and there are people using that, and there's something uh, both scary and amazing about the fact that that is the case. Yeah, like because it still affects selectors, right? Like, yeah, um... that's like it affects selectors, and like one of the things that because like I talk to Chrome engineers a lot about uh, like the React ecosystem and kind of parlay things between those two groups, and one of the things that always comes up is like. Uh, the, the difference between the DOM and the virtual DOM is the virtual DOM has a cost that asymptotically approaches zero. So like, yes, you could build a virtual DOM tree that would take a while to traverse, but you are going to run into some other performance issue before you ever scale up to that point, right? The only people like who are legitimately facing this issue are like the Facebooks of the world. Uh, and they have the engineers on staff to, to figure out how to fix that. <laughs> But like, that's the big difference. Like, you, you can't necessarily persist all this stuff in the actual DOM because those things aren't fully free. And you might run into a case where like the size of your virtual DOM tree, even if the size of your real for, real DOM tree should be small, affects the you know style recalculation time for your whole app because these are things that selectors can match. It gets messy. Yeah. So I derailed you on your rewriting Preact story. Yeah, so we start, like, Fragments was this big problem, and it had been a problem, because, like, Fragments was, was like, available as a beta or, like, unannounced feature in React for ages, and there was just no way it was ever going to happen in Preact, and I knew that. The people who were working on Preact with me at the time knew that. So at some point, uh, I think it was, like, December or January, I had some time off in between leaving my old job and, and getting ready to come to Google because there was a whole bunch of visa stuff to do. And I basically uh, decided that I would see what it would be like to rewrite Preact from scratch. Started, you know, just prototyping. A lot of yeah. time spent on my couch uh, just thinking about things. And eventually, like a month or two after, I showed it to some of the core people. And there was this agreement that it might be interesting to investigate, like what would it look like to cut over to a code base based on that? So uh, hmm. there's like five or 10 people who are like actively committing to that code base. It is a private repo, which uh, is terrible and I'm a bad person. And it's something that I said I would never do. How dare um, you? Yeah, I know. I know it's closed open source. The thing is like anybody who's ever asked us, Hey, can I get access to the source? We're, we pretty much give you access to it. Like it's not private because we have something to hide. It's private because for like months on end, uh, like master would be broken or, or like uh, hydration didn't work. Or like, like this definitely did not want to have anyone looking at that being like, this is the state of the art for Preact. Like this is what's coming. Well, and that's what's frightening too is, you know, humans are undependable, <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. Like people start using things you know, based on weird branches in your repo, you know, um, it's mm-hmm. kind of <clears throat> just look at yeah. vendor prefixes. Yeah, it didn't work out <laughs> yes, exactly. Well. 
Yeah, WebKit uh, user select or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if that one's still useful. I have no idea. I never bothered to look it up. I just put it in everything. So how long? So this rewrite's been like in a, a year in progress, kind of thing, or? Yeah, and... year in progress. It got really intense over the summer. Uh, we had uh, some people just like comb through. Uh, they they know the code base uh, to, to an unfathomable degree. Uh, better than than I do. We brought new people in. Uh, you know, we we brought in somebody who said he had an interest in writing hooks because I, I showed around a demo of hooks working in Preact Eight. Um, nice. And he just like wrote an implementation for this thing. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but the code name for for the rewrite is called Ceviche. I have no idea where that name came from. I do <laughs> like Ceviche. Mm, yeah, but it's well, mm. nice. So yeah, what, what's cool is that this isn't just. You're not just doing this as a thought exercise. Like, if this ships, or I don't know. I mean, I guess you'll get to that. Oh, it's point. a when. <laughs> it's a when. It was supposed to be end of February. Nice. Uh, still shooting for that, but well, that's great, and it really will have good stuff. And it. it's still small, but now it has fragments and hooks. That seems like a big deal. Yeah, it's actually smaller. So our original target for the ceviche release was two kilobytes. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, and like if we didn't have to account for hooks and uh, a bunch, like we ended up building a bunch of optimizations in the diffing algorithm that don't exist in Preact today. So it will be like faster and more memory efficient and whatever. Um, we didn't really account for the fact that we were also going to do that while doing the from scratch rewrite. So for a long time, like it, w- it was two kilobytes and it was going to be 2.4 kilobytes. And we sat at that limit for like ages and ages and ages. But then as part of uh, getting ready for like an actual release, uh, in a bunch of cases, we were trying to figure out, do we add stuff to Preact Compat and to like the compatibility shim thing and, and have everybody end up using Preact Compat because they want to use third-party libraries? Or do we take this opportunity to say like, hey, what if the size didn't change so much? You know, what if it only went down like from 3.5 to 3 kilobytes? But what you got was like, a lot of React stuff would just work out of the box mm-hmm. with Preact Core. So more Compat would go back into to Core. That's so wild to me. It's like it's cool how how much you care, but that seems like a no brainer to me. Point five k, who cares? Yeah, I don't know. And so one of the other things that that we did is like Preact has always been somewhat tree shakeable, although at three k, you know, the degree to which that matters varies. But uh, Marvin Hagemeister, one of the main or people, uh, as part of moving Preact Compat into our new mono repo that we're going to release, uh, also decided to rewrite it. And in doing so, like the amount of compatibility shim that you end up with is a function of how much compatibility you needed. So, like if you only needed the React.children API because something is using React.children only, you're basically getting like. Uh, something that looks like an implementation of array.prototype.for each and an object with three properties. Like, that's it. Uh, and, like, the same deal with hooks. We actually decided to ship hooks as, a as like, a secondary module. So you, you like, import hooks from Preact slash hooks. And uh, the way it's structured, you only pay for the hook that you import. Um, like, there's no meta programming in, in behind them. Like, each hook is a standalone implementation of that hook and all of its infrastructure. So it's kind of cool. If you don't use layout hooks, you're not going to get like a polyfill for after frame callback. 
This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you by something really cool. It's an alternative to .com. It's the .design domain name. So if you're a designer and you've thought of a sweet name for your website and it isn't available under .com, check out .design. Chances are the domain name you want is waiting for you. You can head to porkbun.com and use the coupon code SHOPTALK on the checkout page to get your free .design domain name for your website. And .design is super widely used too. It's not like it's a super weird one anymore. There's Airbnb.design, Facebook.design, Uber.design, Adobe.design. There's so many of them. It's exactly the same. It's just a domain name and Google doesn't really care these days. It functions the same way as .com or .org. It's just more interesting. It looks great on resumes or business cards, on email addresses, and it's free. Did I mention that? You can go to porkbun.com and use coupon code SHOPTALK at checkout. And you get a free year of email hosting, who is privacy, and SSL certs, and all that stuff, which is pretty fantastic. You should go get one right now. Thanks to porkbun.com for sponsoring Shop Talk Show. Well, that's really cool. I I cornered you at a conference, and <laughs> it was just like, like three kilobytes, like how? And I feel like you've kind of like, you just you're constantly hammering and shaving off you know every single thing you can but but i guess my my next question is why why are you setting such an aggressive bar for javascript because let me tell you that doesn't seem to be the trend um, <laughs> so the question is how and why how, how, yeah how and why and then i think the the third part was like like what's missing from the React API? Because you can't just have React but smaller. Like that doesn't seem like possible to me. But like you know, so how, why, and that what's is the, missing? That is the goal. You know, so so the how and the why to me, uh, this is a, a weird one that probably requires a little bit of backstory. So I used to maintain a, I, I built and and then maintained first as a. Uh, personal project, then as my startup, then after the acquisition as my full-time job at my previous company, I maintained a what I want to call an implementation of an operating system in a browser. Um, and like, I don't know how to like take this with a massive grain of salt. Like, I don't even have an engineering degree, so it was like missing a bunch of crap. But like, uh, it was like this idea of being able to have multiple apps that live inside of a browser tab and they'll come with you across all your devices and do sync and all this fancy stuff. So like it was this gigantic, like somewhere between two and five megabytes of compressed first party JavaScript um, to implement all these things. Like it had an implementation of most of nodes, core modules, and it had an implementation of the DOM and web components and shadow DOM and like all this insane stuff. And so I, I was always working in this environment that started from being uh, unfathomably large as a as a web app, like in the era of you know Android between one point six and four. This, these were the kinds of things I was trying to make load in a mobile browser, and it, like it, so, eventually that project ended or whatever, and I left. And I, and there was like this kind of void for me because I had set up so much infrastructure and like substrate for me to build on that I had this way to be super productive in a browser that wasn't the browser way of being productive. Um, and so like when, when that ended and I was forced to kind of move on to something that wasn't this monolithic giant thing that I was productive on, I like bounced around between a bunch of frameworks, tried a bunch of stuff out. And I felt like I was never finding a good balance between stuff that worked out of the box and cobbling everything together myself from like random stuff pulled off of NPM. So I just started writing modules when 
when I would find a case where the platform wasn't fitting my needs. Because like I had already been using web components in Shadowdom in this crazy custom implementation thing. So I kind of chose those as my way forward. And I would like run into like, oh, like uh, routing is crappy. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a little router. And at the time, because I was starting from vanilla, everything that had a cost seemed like a huge cost. Like if your app is only 30K for like a, a completed application, a router being 10K is, it seems absurd, right? It's like, no, that's a third of the entire code base now. So I started writing them, started releasing them. Uh, nobody cared at all. Um, so if you like go into the far reaches of my GitHub, there's like hundreds of modules there that are uh, just like garbage lost to the same. Hundreds? Wow. Yeah. I deleted a bunch of them because they're embarrassing um, and make mistakes or don't have tests or whatever. My thing was like, I was putting these things out there and using them myself and that was fine. After Preact took off though, it got harder for me to just like publish something to GitHub and have it be just for me. There was you know, scrutiny, people would be interested and ask me why I was doing a certain thing. So I like had to put a mantra around why it was that I was doing this to, to make it make sense. It was stuff that was already in my head, like why am I releasing small modules? Because I need small modules. but. Like I needed to have some sort of a, a story that explains why. And so I, what I came up with was there are three factors that control the growth of a library or like a module or whatever. Uh, the size footprint, size on disk, size over the wire, size downloaded by NPM, uh, and then the runtime performance impact. So when you import the module, how long are you waiting for it to finish its crazy meta programming steps and actually return your value, and then how much is that going to affect every render of your application, how many you know, times is it going to interrupt scheduling, whatever. So assuming performance improvement is a constant goal, because I feel like at least that's the one thing everybody's kind of able to agree on. It's like, yes, performance matters to some extent. Um, then like feature creep is a constant, you're always going to be asked for new features, assuming other people are using this thing. Everybody will have a new edge case. Everybody will have like a new, uh, you know, thing that you didn't think of when you were building it that totally means nothing to you, but is like the most important thing that, that you could possibly add to the library, TypeScript or whatever. Um, and so like the only way to actually control those other two factors is to just set a soft limit on something. And library size is the easiest one because you can measure it quickly using like the gzip size module. Um, so like it's, it's interesting because what it turns into is not like, hey, we need to have this library like deliverable in one packet, which is I think what people like assume that's coming from. It turns into instead every issue and every pull request that gets opened against a project has to answer the other half of that equation when you make one of them constant. Like if you're asking for a feature and size must be held as a constant, then you have to either give up runtime performance or you have to change the substrate that that equation is being run on. You have to like find a way to golf down something that's already in the library to offset the cost of that feature. And what I have found is that this is a way for new features coming into a library to be forced to do tech debt fixes in that library. Wow. Like, yeah, it, that's cool. Yeah. Like if you have to go back and rehash these things because like you, you need to find a way to squeeze eight bytes out of this other code that's super old that works just fine because you need those eight bytes for this new feature. 
Mm. And they do it. It works. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, like that was one of the, the weirdest things I noticed with, with this whole Ceviche Preact X rewrite thing. Is like now there's like a whole team of people working on it. And through no involvement of me, every pull request has like, here's the performance characteristics. Uh, all the tests pass. This is plus 86 bytes uh, with like a crying, frowny face or whatever. Like, what are we going to do, guys? Uh, or, you know, everyone. And yeah. at, at like part of the PR review process just becomes a crowdsourcing code golf of like, how can we make this, you know, in addition to, to improving this so we can merge it, how can we make this free? Oh, yeah. So you Every don't year. have plus only commits. You, ha- you have like everything ideally is a plus and minus like we shoot for for negatives yeah, negatives wow i yeah, that, yeah. i and you use, and you use the word golf there golf is i feel like is that terminology that means like how can i like use kind of trickery to make something really small like how can i you know write a router in a tweet or something crazy and what the end result is usually just incomprehensible you know, it wouldn't mean anything to anybody looking at it, but it works some magically because, you know, every function name is a single letter and it uses weird language features and stuff. Is there that in the code base or can you golf without sacrificing? So this is where I think we actually are in a place with the JavaScript ecosystem that is kind of unique in that the, the code that people write when they're contributing to like preact or, MIT or you know, any of these modules that I have that have these goals set unfetch. Um, you're you're writing a syntax that will be compiled by Terser or Uglify. And that's just like a known thing. Like it will yep. be uglified. Even in the case where we're shipping uh, like not minified source, we uglify it and then rebeautify it. And the reason for that so is So you can write a function that says get properties from dom yep. element and it doesn't matter because it will be x in the output you know yeah and and it even like you start to learn these things about terser and i like i like to use terser as an example here because terser is not the it's not the same level as something like uh closure compilers advanced mode where it will literally just like uh decompose all the parts of your application and figure out a different representation of that that happens to have the same characteristics terser is not that it's just all of the weird code golfy syntax optimizations as a service. And so like you start to learn how to work that in. Like you could totally use helper functions and that's okay. Just write them in the way that lets Terser inline them. Now they're free. Uh, or okay. like uh, we have a convention, uh, this micro bundle I think has this by default, but it's used in, in most of these libraries now. It's like if a property starts with an underscore, it's assumed to be private and it will be minified to a one letter property name prefixed by an underscore in the build. Oh, uh, but if it's not, it's public. That means other code might touch it and I can't, I can't mess with it because I can't know exactly. if anybody else needs it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there's weird implications here where like I, I, I can probably get into this later, but like I, I want, uh, I really want the ecosystem to shift towards not transpiling everything down level to ES5. But I think even in doing that, I still want to have this step of like, you don't need to necessarily think about crazy, like inverting Boolean logic to save one byte optimizations. The compiler should be thinking about those things for you. Um, we only get into the weeds with those sorts of things as like a final step in Preact before a release. Or every once in a while, like, 
we'll, we'll do like a version rev and then some iterations. And then one of the releases will be like, no functional change. We just found a way to shave 16 bytes off the library by rearranging some if statements or whatever. It's like you're writing a compiler-specific variant of JavaScript. Yeah, that's an, and it, and it, you know almost like the you think in hooks kind of thing. You think in golf or whatever. You think of how you. you this is it. Like you're writing like you're writing Uglify JS. <laughs> you don't actually. Yeah, you're writing for a compiler. Does that kind of is that a skill everyone should have? Because I mean, whether or not we write very popular three kilobyte libraries, we we all ship to a compiler at some point now i think scope wise we as a as a community app development is so distant from a, from being in a place where those levels of optimizations matter at all that there is i don't even want to use the term lower hanging fruit because i feel like that's not grandiose enough like shaving like 16 kilobytes off of your 250 kilobyte gzip javascript bundle isn't going to help anyone are you are you looking at my javascript bundle? <laughs> how dare you Honestly, 250 like that's you're you're not in the, the worst case bucket <laughs> it's interesting there. to hear you say that though like what wh- that's not worth it like wh- what is worth it cutting it in half or rewriting it so my my philosophy here is that when you scale up an application and you have multiple people contributing to it and you're iterating on a feature set and that that value proposition for your application is like, what does it do? What, what goals does it accomplish? The types of optimizations that are impactful for you are going to be whole program optimizations. And those would be things like being able to apply a compiler optimization that strips out unreachable type errors. Uh, one concrete example of that is like, uh, you could totally use Babel's strict mode class transform in development if you want to know that you forgot to call super. But in production, I would argue that no one should ever be relying on a failure to call super error in their logs. Like nothing should ever get to that point in production. So you should compile that out. You should find those things that are like runtime invariants or uh, unnecessarily detailed error messages that are trying to be helpful and just don't ship them in production. That's not where they're most valuable. Vue does a good job of this. I feel like, you know, their their production and their development branches are very, very different. Like Yeah, exactly. And like React even just ships, like they're, they're just separate files. There's not even related. They, they compile flags out from one and the other. And they're like, I think the production or like the development build is like four times the size of the production one because it's got all these error messages in it. The thing is, we don't do this in application land. Like we use stuff like node env, but uh, we don't really structure our code bases in a way that can benefit from it. We use syntax constructs that don't collapse well, like classes and decorators and object uh, properties and whatever. And then we actively transpile them to the largest possible representation. Like for years, uh, you know, if you were were profiling website, you look for how many copies of regenerator were inlined into the source. And like Regenerator was like 30k at that time. Mm. Like, yeah, that's not a that's not like a size that that you can offset by saying, oh, well, we got this functionality out of it. Because in reality, it's just like a syntax choice. You just didn't use promises. You used async await. So like one of the optimizations that I would characterize as being like this like low effort, high value thing for apps would be moving or identifying that the way that you wanted to use async await 
was this like 90% subset of the possible functionality of async await. Like maybe you're not using uh, await star or whatever, or that like, uh, await for syntax. And being able to say like, I in production am willing to accept that I'm using a slightly non-standard transpiled version of async await. And I can switch to like Babel plugin async to promises or whatever. I just apply that for the entire program. Um, like those are things where it's going to take your bundle size down by by a percentage, like a, a real you know, ten plus twenty plus percentage change. That's a big deal. Eco, if we're talking about the JavaScript ecosystem, that's kind of what we're trying to dig into here. I love stuff like that. That type of thinking. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you by DigitalOcean. You can get started today with DigitalOcean with a free one hundred dollar credit by going to do.co slash shop talk. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage points, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date. Like I said in a previous episode, I fired up a discourse forum, old school web forum on DigitalOcean. They had tutorials that walked me through configuring it all. I had no idea what I was doing, but it works fine and flawlessly. And there's tons of folks chatting in there and it just works. I still get to feel like a smart web nerd who ran some server software. But most importantly, the folks who are using the forum have a stable, secure environment to carry on their conversations without having to worry about any server stuff. So if you've been thinking about starting up some sort of web app or a site or a service online, take advantage of DigitalOcean's free $100 credit by visiting do.co slash shoptalk and get started today with DigitalOcean. Our thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of Shop Talk Show. I, I was going to say there's kind of another dimension here too, right? Uh, um, like, the, and you sort of were getting at it, but the the modern, you know, JavaScript async await, and then what's it look like after it goes through Babel? You know, um, most browsers support it, but let's say you support IE eleven. Are you when you say three kilobytes as a target? Is that the like modern, like all ultra modern weight, or is that the oh, it's been through a little bit of preset env weight or? What? So for a long time, I would have to constantly remind people that the only bytes that matter are the ones that get sent over the wire. Um, because the, the bytes on disk when you're developing the library only matter to you. And that's like a one versus n kind of a problem. So it, in its current state, I would say for the ecosystem, this, the size that you should track and the size that matters is gzipped compressed bytes because gzip compression and basic uglify closure in simple mode terser style uh, whole program optimizations those are like the closest thing we have to free transforms for a whole code base so you should be able to like you should assume that if somebody cares about performance they have applied these optimizations and we can rely on that so those bytes that you ship over the wire you can kind of factor in the fact that that is our lowest common denominator level of optimization. I still think that like the the size of the code 
before being transpiled or optimized or minified matters because that's where you get into things like not even just syntax constructs, but like uh, one of the things that I always tell people about Preact is like Preact is a collection of 25 functions in a file. And that is the entire architecture of Preact. There's nothing else there. There's no patterns. There's no, uh, you know, gorilla banana problem or any of these things. And it's not because I'm like a functional programming zealot or anything. That's just the type of code that optimizes most readily. You don't have to infer anything about where properties live or what could be collapsed. There's no classes that you could potentially dissolve out as an optimization step. You've just, you've, you've armed the compiler with everything that it needs to be able to reduce your code base in the, the highest possible, uh, in, in like the, the most intense possible way. It probably makes sense at the framework level since ideally with frameworks, you're usually not hopping in and, you don't need big DX in there, you know. You know, you, you're just you you just in, include it and forget it, kind of, right? So yeah, well, and that's the other the other half of it. Like we all have this uh, kind of an inbuilt nature of wanting to ship things to npm that just work out of the box, and because npm is a repository for JavaScript and doesn't get more specific than that, right? Like, it's not a repository for browser JavaScript or Node JavaScript. We are all in this weird situation where if you build a module and you want to have any hope of running across browser and Node and maybe, you know, multiple different browsers, you have to go lowest common denominator. Um, and I think if there's, like, any one thing that's holding the entire ecosystem back more than anything else right now, it's the fact that we still have this expectation that npm modules are ES5, and it just breaks everything because like everybody's afraid to transpile their node modules because it might take extra time, even though there's like really really easy deterministic caching that you can set up since npm modules are immutable. Like we're just kind of afraid to take that leap as a community, and I think until we cross that bridge we're going to be in this position where even if you do a really good job of, you know, doing differential serving, like using module, no module or whatever to like only ship modern JavaScript to modern browsers and then having this like uh, transpiled fallback for IE 11 and prior. Let's talk about that a little bit. Cause if you're saying that's one of the biggest things that would matter these days is that this, there's this problem with shipping too much ES five when it's unnecessary to do so. And there's, there's an, you're saying there's an answer to that in that in this differential serving thing can we just like put a point on that that would be nice like isn't it by default that there, there's probably a lot of people out there that maybe have never heard of it and just are just es5ing just because that just seems like what you do and but you're gonna yeah. get the best compatibility that way and honestly it's not the most intuitive solution right when when i say module no like differential serving is a confusing term because it could mean lots of things it just means serving different things to different clients but uh module no module it sounds like what I'm saying is you should use ES modules when they're available and then not ES modules when they're not available. And in reality, it has nothing to do with that. And most differential, like module, no module setups don't use ES modules in either case. Uh, so like what it is, is uh, a cutting the mustard test. So I'm trying to remember what library used to do this that you'd stick like a inline script in the head of your document that would check for something. It would check for like a, 
Oh, do I have query selector uh, all? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, you have no query selector all. I'm going to bring an HTML5 shiv or whatever it is. I forget what the semantics was. Um, or like normalizer is a similar thing where it's just like, here, here's the APIs that you might care about. Uh, you know, if, if everything meets this, this decided factor, then you should go with modern mode. Module though module is that. If, it, if you're in a browser that supports JavaScript modules, like, uh, you can assume that that browser supports classes because as it turns out, all of them do. And like, because module no module kind of gives you that point in time where all browsers suddenly were able to handle these types of things, like these basic syntax constructs, like class and const and, you know, whatever yeah, else. Right, 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 right. So you can make this, you can say, hey, Babel, could you please produce for me a version of my JavaScript that doesn't have any of that stuff in it? There's no classes in there. There's no var, const, whatever. <clears throat> and also, please also make me another version of my JavaScript that does have those things in there. Because when they do the size is just inherently smaller and probably runs faster. Yeah, and the value here is the the percentage of browsers that fall into the yes I have modules camp is like a ton. 90. It's like it's super high. It's it's uh almost to the point where people would question needing that fallback bundle. Um and I think like, while you could probably make an argument for like, oh, you should just use modern things and, and we'll just ship modern things and, and people can upgrade their browsers. If you're in a position where you're forced to be pragmatic about this, at least what you've been able to do here is take a problem where you had to have one solution before, where you had to go lowest common denominator, and you've given it two denominators, right? So you split the problem completely into two, and now you have like modern and everything else. And you can load that everything else bundle up with all the yeah. <laughs> transpiling. This seems like a really good pattern, like really good. And JavaScript community, I feel like, has had a lot of success stories at at, at sharing what a best practice is and having every, having that just dig into the mind share of the world. And everybody just does it that way. But this one, it doesn't seem to be winning to me. It doesn't seem to be like, this is de facto. Is there some way that we can get it there? Or like, can could a tool like Webpack or something just kind of like start helping with this by default or something webpack is in an interesting position here because their substrate for like the 90 percent use case like uh most of this is a totally a grandiose generalization but most webpack usage is either through some sort of a cli wrapper like create react app ucli prex cli nextjs whatever or it's something that somebody cloned because they they were learning Webpack or like found a config that was really good. Copy and pasted West bosses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or like uh, one of the starter packs that have more stars than GitHub is capable of rendering. Right. Um, like, and and because it, it sort of takes them out of a position where they could where they could do something like this by default because they don't set the defaults. These tools set the defaults. And so one of the things that, like, I, I've even been, you know, very, very arm's length. I don't want to take any credit for any of this because I'm totally, like, uninvolved. But, uh, like, people like Chris Baxter, who's, who's now at Google, um, Luke Edwards, uh, Pratik, a bunch of people have been kind of in this space poking the various, you know, command line tool authors being like, hey, like, there's this huge, uh, usually, like, a, on the order of 30% size savings you can get. And when you go and tell people, hey, you know, the to do MVC in view CLI is X number of bytes over the wire, you can tell them the module version 
and that's all you have to say. And like, it's totally okay because for the 90% use case, that's what you're shipping. Uh, they've been kind of doing that work to get everybody on board. So now Vue CLI has shipped differential serving. Preact CLI has differential serving in its next branch. Uh, I think Next.js might even be looking into it, which is super cool. Create React that is app. Cool. That's cool. That's cool. So people know this. It's like coming. It's like it's it's happening yeah. maybe slower than we'd like, but the tools know this and are fixing the, it. The tools know it. Everyone knows that this is that this is an opportunity. There's some discussion of whether this is enough or whether that module versus doesn't have modules cut off is going to turn into the next you know, one bundle to, to rule them all. So, you know, people have been pitching, oh, have a script tag with an async function in it and then check to see whether it got de declared successfully and load depending on that. So your litmus test is instead, do I support async or wait? Um, okay. Yeah, like there's well, like a bunch of things Well, you can always change that. The test is should be, uh, hopefully the test becomes easy to change. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so the, the beauty of module, no module, that nothing else can ever come close to touching is that it does not require script execution in order to make this It's like decision. a native browser feature? Yeah, well, with the exception of Safari 10.1 point something, uh, they broke mm. the no module attribute, uh, but there's a workaround oh. for that that involves some script execution. <laughs> uh, but wow. in a lot of cases, because it was a patch update and it's been fixed, people will just ignore that, and that's fine. So when when does this mo no module, module, no module feature, I mean... Or is it happening here in 2019, or is it? Yeah, I think so. I think once you get the the starter packs of the world, like once Angular CLI, Vue CLI, Next.js, Create React App, and Preact CLI have all shipped this, um, really the only thing left is boilerplates, and that gauntlet has now been laid, right? Like. The, we know what the, what the standard is as a result of people actually deploying these things to production and seeing the size benefits. And by the way, not only size benefits, the killer feature here is when you load something as a module, you're in a different parser. You are literally, so there's like two modes for JavaScript parsers, classic and module, and classic does crazy stuff. You can use HTML comments in JavaScript in the classic parser. And Listen to this. This yeah. is wild. Yeah. like Wow. There are so many things that we, that we, everybody, if you if you thought about it, would recognize like, yep, that doesn't belong in the scripting language that I want to be using in 2019. And so many of them are turned off in modules that like this is just the, the hugest single way to make that giant leap forward. Wow, because quite literally we've been calling this, you know, new era kind of modern JavaScript. And they're under the hood in this, the module, there, there's a new Java, modern JavaScript. Oh yeah, like everything's strict mode by default, and you know while that might not feel like it means a lot, uh, it when when you're talking about a JavaScript engine that needs to compile stuff, right? We're not really in interpreted engines anymore, with the exception of like the first you know tiny fraction of time your app is running in, in V8 now. Um, Any time when you can not have to account for some crazy edge case, especially ones that are very unlikely to ever be used or to happen, like uh, mutating the arguments object in place, like that's a that's a cost savings at the engine level. But we have to be in a mode where we can enable it. And so modules is just like one. It's like a very neatly packaged up with a bow version of this that you can opt into super easily. You know what this reminds me of, and this is such a small thing comparatively to what we're talking about here. But there's this feature in CSS 
called at supports, a, a block of you can write it, and it has a JSON or a JavaScript API as well. But you can you can write up in for three four years now. I think it's it's been kind of considered a bad practice to write a at supports block and a not supports block, even though it would be really nice to do that because then it's totally two separate things, and then you don't have to worry about what's cascading into each other and rewriting stuff. We're starting to get to that point where it's it's it is okay. Like if you if once we're past the point where browsers act do consistently support at supports, then you can write those mutually exclusive blocks, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, it's it'd be like if you like had some of your code base that was in classic mode, and then like this like new stuff that was in module mode, and when it didn't load, uh, it like wouldn't override stuff from classic mode. That's a really hard, like weird inheritance model to to think of in your brain versus if you could just split up the two things as distinct groups especially if it's two and not n things get really easy and you're in a position where let's say you're using at supports for for some feature uh like viewport units or whatever and your browser support crests 95 percent, and you decide oh i don't need the other one like you just delete the other block that's all you do there's no like, oh, how is this going to work with a cascade of rules prior to it? Or right. Yeah, that, that reminds me of polyfills. Like, oh, I'm yeah. polyfilling this feature and I don't want it anymore. Ideally, the, everything has been written in such a way where you just stop loading the polyfill then. You know? Yeah, like that's the other half of this equation too, for, for JavaScript at least, is uh, we need better solutions for automatic polyfilling and we have better solutions for automatic polyfilling we need to use them, like stuff like polyfill.io and uh, yeah, even which like is notable stuff. in that it doesn't polyfill unless it needs to, which is exactly, yeah. and it's like highly cacheable. Uh, you know, I, I would really like to see like someone write uh, like a clever little client side library that pulls from like an iframe with a service worker, so that more than just relying on the HTTP cache, you can like pull your your polyfills for your current browser from memory in a frame uh, <laughs> almost synchronously like with with one like micro task tick or whatever and just have that be how you load polyfill so there's no hit mm. um nobody's done this yet but like like almost like a client-side cdn kind of thing and i feel like that would be this cool situation where just like you just work on the web platform uh you know whatever the current year is that's like your your spec year and you just don't ever think about the compatibility implications of using these things. We heard, you know, when we talked with Lori Voss, it was not at Google, it was at NPM, but it seemed to indicate that they've talked, he's talked with people at Google in such a way that, like, maybe, you know, Google's far from dumb. They're, like, the most invested in browser tech of any company, really, and that they can see that this world of React and Preact or whatever, like front-end JavaScript, is like what everybody's doing already. Like that ship has already sailed in a way. And that the future might be optimizing browsers for that case. I know I've shifted the conversation here. I did I'm kind of on purpose as we wrap up here. Do you like? Do you have any insider knowledge on that? Or if you can't share anything, does that sound reasonable to you that – that browsers themselves might be like, oh, okay, well, you're not shipping HTML anymore, so we'll optimize for JavaScript or in, a, in a way. Uh, that's very reasonable. And um, I would say there is a huge interest on the Chrome team uh, and, and other teams even at Google in 
changing the changing the way we build changing the way we think about browser usage by developers from just assuming that everyone's using the primitives to understanding how those primitives are being used by that intermediary layer of libraries and frameworks and and like understanding it at more than just a superficial level like a primitive I, I being to, html css and javascript right those kind yeah, of yeah like, html css language. javascript like direct dom manipulation or whatever like there's yeah. definitely people still doing that but those are the cases we've been optimizing for in the browser for years yeah but and, like, we assume that you're building websites this way so we're going to make everything really fast assuming that you're doing it that way and uh, maybe that assumption is not so right anymore yeah and i feel like there's a risk there's a risk internally and externally always of making it seem like, you know, we're, we're like, this is like some huge internal change or whatever. And, and I don't think that's the goal at all. It's really just like an empathy thing. Uh, you know, we, we realize that you, you can't just only build the substrate and expect people to just work out for themselves what the best practices are on top of that. I mean, it's amazing at this point that people have done such a good job of doing that. But why can't you like have the knowledge of, of engineers who work on a browser engine and like incorporate that into the feedback process of building a library? Like why can't uh, like we've been we've been talking to the React team a lot directly at conferences, uh, and honestly, it's, it's been fantastic. It's really interesting to hear all the like feedback from them about like oh we're pushing the limits of this and it like totally totally falls over or whatever and like. Sometimes it'll be the first time we've heard of it. Or if we're like working on a new spec, it's it's not just like, does this make sense for web components in vanilla JavaScript? You can factor in, like, does this make sense for where that huge percentage of the ecosystem is? Uh, that's good. I'm, I'm glad the talk talking happens. You know, I think, I think a lot of people kind of assume that the talking happens, but it turns out it's in a hallway at the Hilton Garden Inn, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. At least now it happened. It's, you know? it's much more intentional. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think we should probably wrap it up here. Uh, uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. I was surprised to learn your last name is not develop it. So uh, this is <laughs> what a <laughs> uh, what a great time. Uh, do you have any parting advice for people wrangling kind of JavaScript apps? Is there is there like like a quick tip? Because because I, I feel like you're on the other end of the spectrum, like writing three kilobyte frameworks. How, how does like average Joe or Jane developer uh, start, start embedding these, these processes in their, their workflow? I mean, the easy thing in, you know, in modern JavaScript land is do a real build or buy analysis, like a, like a comparison between, the tools that you have available when you're starting out your your build tool your transpiler uh or, or preferably something that wraps all these things up if you aren't in a position where you feel like you have this huge working set of knowledge that you can bring to you know a tool chain for building your app you should you should find one that can deliver on on your needs like go and look at the performance characteristics and and uh goals of each project each of these clis i've mentioned before and to me, like that's almost a bigger factor in in the decision of of what you know stuff you might use as a as a JavaScript developer to build an app than your library or your framework is like what is the tooling around that that can support you as you move from prototype all the way out to production. 
And then every time you you build an app, just sort of do a a check to see, you know, when I look at my bundle, does this look like code I would write? Or is this something that is just like so far removed from from what I've typed into my editor that I don't understand it? All right. Awesome. Uh, I think my dog is barking at the mailman. So that's time to wrap it up. Um, thank you. Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Jason, for coming on. Uh, for people who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? Oh, I don't need money, but uh, they can follow me on the Twitter. There's an underscore before my development handle there because uh, I've not been able to rectify that yet. Uh, or follow me on the GitHub's. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much. And um, yeah, uh, uh, thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast of choice. Be sure to star heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. Uh, and if you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you and a uh, little bit of housekeeping our website fell over we're working on it hopefully it's done this week uh but anyway we'll figure that out so uh chris you got anything else you'd like to say yeah yeah you know i looked on itunes and you know hopefully that is sort of awesome. we haven't had a review in like months so if you you know if you love the show five stars yeah five stars use the word tractor beam that's it <laughs> shoptalkshow.com <laughs>